God praise for his word. Yeah. Let's just pray together really quick. God, would you give us ears to hear? Father, may we be able to attentive our ears towards your word today. Would you give us a mind that's open, that sets aside all preconceived ideas that we have fabricated about you and your goodness. And Father, may we see you clearly through your word today. And Father, most of all, would you soften our hearts so that when your word comes and speaks to us, that we don't leave here with callous hearts, but with willing hearts to do the work you've called us to. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said... Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so we're in a six-week sermon series. This sermon series, we're calling it the Jesus Church, but I want to give you a true background. About once a year or so, we do something similar to this um, because uh, we all need recalibrating, right? Like, and, and that's kind of where we, when we planted Collectivist Church, felt like our place was, was in a recalibration place. Recalibrating means getting back to where it was supposed to be. And so um, when we planted Collectivist Church, five of us were sitting around a dining room table with a whiteboard that I wrote down John chapter 17 of. Actually, my wife, Cassidy, just yesterday, I think it was, said that in her time hop, uh, no, it wasn't that. It was in my time hop just the other day. She showed me something else. It was a different story. Totally off the point. Um, in my time up the other day, it popped up that we were just recently, that picture was four years ago where we had sat around a dining room table and wrote down John 17. So for the next four weeks, part of the series, we're going to look at Jesus's last prayer, and it's his prayer for the church and for the future believers and disciples of Christ. So it's going to be really important. I want you to pay attention to that part. After four weeks, we'll stay in the series. In week five, we're going to look at the culture of the early church. We're going to talk about that for a week, which we talk about a lot here. And then week six, um, it's going to be something that we've spoken about but never taught on. And we're going to turn to Revelation, to where we see Jesus coming and establishing his kingdom and what the church, the bride of Christ, looks like. And so the church Jesus prayed for, the church that was established right after Jesus' ascension, and then the church he returns for. And you'll be, I was very interested to find out the amount of things that overlap, which means when we get off from that, there's always recalibration seasons. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So all that being said, um, first 10 minutes of today's message, 10 to 15 minutes, these are for my, uh, I said history buffs in the last one, note takers. I'm just going to call you what you are. The first 15 minutes is for the nerds in the room, right? Like the ones who like to write. I love you. We have two groups of people, people who write and people are like, I'll remember it. No, you won't, but it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. You don't remember anything. You just need to write it down. But um, it's not going to be, it's going to be just kind of giving us some historical background of the church. I'm going to be honest. We're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes on this message doing that. And anybody who comes after this week, they're just not going to get this information. And I don't know what to do about it, but I don't want to spend 15 minutes every sermon doing it. So um, let's kind of define the church. What is church before we talk about Jesus church? Well, I'm going to give you a historical kind of walking through um, of, well, oh, let me back up first. Yep. So I'm sorry. I messed up a little bit. Um, Last week, Danson, who just read our scripture, um, came before you because a few weeks ago, y'all prayed for Popo's mother. Popo's a missionary in Haiti, um, and his mother ended up passing. And last week, um, just out of your normal tithes and offerings, your normal generosity, um, we were able to help provide the funeral for um, Popo's mom. Um, Popo had already sold his house to help provide this funeral. such a big deal in Haiti, and um, it was a big deal. But I did want to just show you pictures because you were part of this um, beautiful funeral that happened. Um, and so they celebrated her life and the impact she had on the community and Popo and the continual 
um, uh, impact he has. And by the way, um, that's a beautiful picture of the church is that you got to reach across the globe and be a part of celebrating the life of a believer in the midst of unbelieving world. And so um, just proud of you for that. Um, okay, now let's hop into the history of the church really quick. So get your notes out. Here we go. I'm going to talk about all the different eras of the church leading up to today. The first is what we call the tabernacle era. Um, this was a mobile sanctuary that was built during Moses' and the Israelites' exodus from um, Egypt as slaves to the promised land. And they needed this mobile tabernacle, which was a place of worship, right? And then after that, we see what's called the temple era. This is when King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, which became the center of the Jewish worship at the time. The first temple was later destroyed by the Babylonians in 5086 BC. And then we see the second temple. After the Babylonian exile, the Jews rebuilt the second temple in Jerusalem. And during that period, various religions and political developments occurred, including the rise of what we call synagogues today and the Jewish worship and kind of instruction within those. And then we see Jesus, the time of Jesus, which was the first century AD. Jesus came on the scene and became the central figure of what we call Christianity today, who we've come to know as the Messiah, the Son of God. He preached a message of love, of salvation, and of the kingdom of God being near. And then after his death and his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And then we got what we call the early church. When people ask us about collectivists, that we say we're modern day expression of the early church. Like, what do we mean when we say early church? It means that we recalibrate our hearts on the mindset and the ways of the first to fourth century church. The, the resurrection of Jesus led to this growth of the Christian faith. Um, believers gathered in homes and they continue to go to temple um, in order to tell the gospel and things like that. And this is when the New Testament, that right side of your Bible was written. And then what happened during the early church is there was this persecution from Rome because of this. But then something interesting happened about the 4th century. Um, Emperor Constantine, Constantine um, was converted to Christianity, which then led to the acceptance and later kind of the recognition of Christianity in the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire. And then there was this group of people, and this was kind of that first recalibration period called the Nicene Council. The Nicene Council gathered together because over the last fourth century since Jesus came and fulfilled all the old, and then the new church was birthed, over four centuries had passed, and now people were starting to say, well, what do Christians actually believe? What do they believe about Mary? What do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about God? And so this council came together, the Council of Nicene. They came together for the first time in 325 AD. They established um, definitions around different thoughts and practices that were becoming widely spread. This is before we saw denominations. We were seeing denominations, right? Oh, I view this different. I view this different. And Nicene Council said, no, 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 there is a way that we need to view this. Um, if you ever go to Bulgaria with me, which we just talked about Bulgaria a minute ago, I'll take you to the place where the second Nicene Council met actually in the country of Bulgaria, which is really neat. And then after that, um, and key doctrines were established in that period. We have a medieval period, um, and this is where things began to shift, right? The church became this dominant social and political force. 
And the Eastern and Western branches of Christianity um, experienced kind of a schism, right? And they led to the formation of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Churches. And this is also where we've started seeing a lot of different political leanings start to steer our churches. And then in the 16th century, we see the Protestant Reformation, which Martin Luther and other reformers um, uh, challenged um, some things within the Roman Catholic Church, leading to the establishment of the Protestant Church. And the Bible, um, I mean, the invention of the printing press during this time helped spread the Bible around. And then we get to what was called the modern era. We're almost there, which is 17th century to present. This um, is... um, Lots of things happen. That actually isn't to present. That's to the 20th century, sorry. Um, Lots of things happen, and this is where political leanings influence religious thoughts heavily. But this is also where we saw missionaries start spreading across the world um, with new discoveries and scientific um, discoveries and things like that. And then we land at today, actually 20th century to present, which is what we call the contemporary times. Um, The church continues to adapt Um, and changing culture during this moment. But when we look back on this moment 100 years from now, I want to define what they will say about the current church. Um, This is when the churches got really big, right? This is when online services began to happen, right? Um, This is when we saw culture begin, that the church wasn't setting culture, but a time when it was trying to kind of keep up with culture, right? We see this moment of growth and see this reshaping of the role in the church within society. But the question I have is out of all these different times in church history, what did Jesus desire? What was it Jesus praying for in John 17? What was this New Testament church? And there was a word in the New Testament, ecclesia, and it means church. That's what it defines it as. And I want to give you seven defining factors of it really quick. This is still for my note takers, and then we'll get into today's message in a minute. All right, so what are seven defining factors of the early New Testament church, the Jesus era and the early church era? This would be seven things that I found them to be. The first is they're set apart. Just like Christians are seen as a part of the community, but there was something about them that was alluring to the world. Like, like, like that in the midst of persecution, like disciples stood up fearless. They were set apart, right? Look at First Peter, it actually says this. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wondrous light. You are chosen people, royal priesthood set apart. The second defining factor would be unity and diversity. And I'll talk about this in a second. But this term, ecclesia, actually underscores this concept of unity and diversity. In the early church, it says things like they had all things in common, not meaning that they were all the same. But what it meant was that unity was a choice in the midst of differences. And here's what we say at Collectivists. That differences will either lead to division or diversity. And what you do with your differences will determine that outcome. And we believe that unity is a choice and that diversity is a blessing from God that comes with unity. We don't preach unity. We don't strive for unity. We strive, I mean, we don't, we don't preach diversity or strive for diversity. We preach unity and things become more diverse as we do it because we do have differences. We have differences and we get to choose if that's going to lead to divisions which makes us build walls, which makes us separate into different categories. And by the way, if you didn't know, this Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the United States every, every week. 
We, are, we all go to separate places, separate churches, separate things to go to where we find ourselves to be most aligned. And the one thing I love about collectivists is that we've chosen unity over our differences. Galatians 3 says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Third thing, really quick, collective decision-making. The early church made decisions together. Um, I won't go into our policy-making procedures here, but I want you to know it's a collective decision. It does not fall on a singular person. Actually, if I'm being honest with you, I don't have a vote. You can ask our leadership team. I don't have a vote. I can't vote on anything in our church. Um, and it is actually done by a community, and that is the idea is that we all have something to bring. And by the way, we'll talk about that in a second. Look at this, Acts chapter 1. Did we lose our screen back there? We did. I mean, we're just losing all kinds of technology today. I have no idea what's happening. Sorry, I'm looking back there like you can see it. So good luck back there. Sorry. Um, the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, not the Judas you're thinking about. And Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, right? So it was a communal thing, which gets us to number four, which is a little bit different but the same. And it's a communal or community contribution, um, Ecclesia literally means to move from consumer to contributor. It is emphasizing participation, not just passive attendance. And we say at Collectivists that you are not meant to be consumers but contributors. And by the way, there is a problem with this phrase, and that is that you can show up to Collectivists and just consume even when our lights go out and projectors go out and it still be an okay time. Um, but you will not come long before you feel like it's not home anymore because contribution is the way that we have structured our faith and our church is that participating is is what makes it like home. First um, Corinthians, Paul says this. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Number five, spiritual authority. Um, we believe that the decisions, uh, that uh, Jesus granted authority to the church to bind and loosen on earth. Decisions made in unity carry spiritual weight. Look at this. Jesus spoke. Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you that you are Peter. Jesus just asked the disciples, who do people say I am? They gave him all these answers. And then Peter said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you are, that's right, Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now he's speaking about building his church. And he's speaking about Peter. And he's saying, I'm going to give Peter and on this thing I build my church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whether you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then last is representation. Just as citizens represented the city in the Greek assembly, Christians represent Christ in his kingdom on earth. They are ambassadors of reconciliation. And it tells us that Paul, again, to the early church, says this. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though, uh, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you to, you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then last, sorry, this is last is missional living. Um, you are called to be salt and light in this world. Like You are called to have an impact on society to positively through your, our collective witness. And Matthew tells us this. Jesus speaks and says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? 
As it, no, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot. You are, look at this, the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You sang the song, right? This little light. Yep. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So week one, we're going to talk about God being glorified. Week two, we're going to talk about, you don't have to write this part down, disciples being sanctified. Week three, we're going to talk about the world being justified. Week four, we're going to talk about the church being unified. Um, And then week five, we're going to talk about culture of the early church. And then week six, we're going to talk about the bride of Christ. We did it. You did it. Note takers did it. Does anybody want to hear a joke now? Yes. All right. Let's do a joke. Um, so talk about brides for a second. So there was a young girl who she was the first wedding she went to and she went with her mama and she was so excited and she was just looking at all the flowers and looking at all the pretty things. And the bride came down the aisle and she was wearing her white dress and it was so beautiful. And she said, mama, why does the bride wear a white dress? And her mama said, because it's the happiest day of her life and it's such a joyous day. And this white dress means happiness. And then the child's face got really sad. And the mom said, why is your face really sad? And she goes, because the man's wearing a black suit. I'm joking. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's about the bride. Some of y'all will get it later. All right. So, sorry. The Jesus, my wife's at this service too is the problem. She's over there. So I'm going to look over here the rest of the time if that's okay. Um, all right. So really quick, we're going to be in John 17 and Philippians 1 if you have your Bibles. So we always ask the same four questions at Collective Church. No matter what, whenever you show up, we're going to ask four questions about the topic or the scripture for the day. And that is, what does God want us to know? Why does he want us to know? It? What's he want us to do? What will be the results? Um, today, we're going to camp out on what does God want me to know and kind of clarify that with a few more statements as well. So what's God wants you to know? I think he wants you to know that Jesus prayed for God to be glorified. Like we saw that. John 17, Jesus prayed for the future of the church and for us as believers, that God would be glorified, would be a defining factor of the future of believers and the church. And then as he was praying this, this is actually how it began. I want to give you some breakdown of understanding the glory of God. He starts in verse 1 by actually saying, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Right? Uh, Sorry, back up. He looked towards heaven and he prayed. And the thing I want you to understand, three things that he wants you to know that will help you understand the glory of God and our place to glorify him is that, number one, you can't glorify God unless you look to God. Right? To glorify God is to lift him up. Um, And you can't lift up something you don't perceive, right? You You can't, we say that you can't receive something you can't perceive, but you also can't glorify something you can't see. Which is interesting because we worship a God that we can't see. So what does it look like to look to God? We're going to talk about that in a second. But I was an art major before I was in biblical studies. And there was a practice we used to do in art class that was interesting. We would have, be doing realism drawing. Or, and we would have an, um, a figure in the middle of the room that we were supposed to draw. And all our desks would be in a circle around it. And we had a practice where we would start by drawing with never looking at our paper. Just looking at the object. So you weren't allowed to look down. You just drew looking at the object. After you did that, you looked down and you laughed about how silly the picture looked, right? And then the next practice was the opposites. You got to look at the figure for just a minute. And then they would put a black cloth over it. And you would take another piece of paper and you have to draw the object. And the study was really interesting at the end of it. And I only saw it within our class. I don't know any greater studies than just like the 30 people in this class. 
But the first object that we drew, just looking at the object, not looking at our paper, it didn't really make sense all by itself. But if you saw the object you were looking at and you looked at this object, then you actually saw like a lot of the detail work of the object in there. It might be like in the wrong place. It might be a little bit backwards. But all the details were on the paper, even though it wasn't really cohesive enough for us to understand. But the details were there. The opposite happened on the other. We would draw something that would somewhat resemble the object in the room, but none of the details of the object were in the drawing, right? And so here's my fear, and I think about this in our faith. The reason I say you have to look to God in order to glorify God is I'm fearful that what we've treated Christian faith is that we go and see God for a moment, maybe on Sundays when the lights don't work and the projectors are out, And then we go through the rest of our week trying to make sense of something we saw that we no longer see. And we begin to draw a picture of our God that is understandable in concept, but has lost all of his details. Now, there is a fear of the other side, right? Like, what if we, like, like if you just look at God, but you don't practically, like, look down at what you're doing, well, then you're going to see the details of God, but it won't make sense in your current context, right? If we're going to lean on one of them, I think you should just look to God the most, more than anything in the world. But the beauty of drawing would be a healthy balance of looking to God and putting it on paper, looking to your object and putting it on paper. And I want that to be your faith. And your faith rhythm should not be Sunday and then six days and then Sunday and then six days, right? So I want you to leverage these things, seeing God fully so that we can display him properly. And you can only do that if you look to God. The second thing you need to understand is that, we need to, that glorifying God is leveraging the things of God for the kingdom of God. Now, what do I mean by the things of God? Well, verse 2, it says, For you granted him authority, Jesus' authority, he's saying, over all people that he, Jesus, might give eternal life to all those you have given. God has entrusted influence to the people of God since the beginning. And the church is not a place. It's not a space. It's not a culture. You know this. I don't have to preach this. Church is a people, right? Like, and let me back up why. Tabernacle, we had this thing called the Ark of the Covenant that we were trying to protect, right? Temple, the holiness of God behind this curtain, that that's where his presence dwelled with Jesus' death and resurrection. He ascended and went and sat at the right hand of God the Father. He said, don't move until another one comes. And he sent what's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the presence of God, tangible with you and I today. And he says, don't move without it. And so now the dwelling place for God's presence is not this building it is you his people and so we need to leverage everything in our life for the kingdom of God that is glorifying God and in the way we can know if we're glorifying God not if this church becomes his home but if your house should be his home our our world is where we reside and our world needs to be influenced by the things of God but he has chosen to do it through the people of God I wrote this in my journal this week when we see dark areas and unredeemed spaces It's because we have chosen not to leverage the things of God for the kingdom of God. See, when we see dark areas of the world, we begin to find it as a God issue. Well, if God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful, why is there still dark spaces in the world? It is not a God issue. It is a sibling issue. The cross did not lose its power, nor did the redemption work of Jesus fall short. But instead, he has called you light of the world, salt, right? He has called you to go into all spaces. Now, don't do it alone. We do it through what's called missional communities. You should do this with people in community to the world, which is what a church looks like. Look at verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
The glory of God is seen in eternal life. And I believe that this life is about the eternal. Now, I said this last week, but maybe you weren't here. I'll say it again. When you think about eternal life, eternal life should not start with your death. Okay? We begin eternal life not when you die, but when you receive Christ. Knowing Jesus, so much so that when you come to know Christ, death should be but a bump, a blimp, a second, and then you close your eyes and you awaken on the other side. Jesus, we said this last week, but Jesus isn't waiting for you at the pearly gates. He's waiting for you now. And if you're waiting for death to experience salvation, then death has become your savior and not Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? Right? If death is the thing that's going to bring in the eternal glory of God in your life, then you have moved what Jesus has done to your death. And that's why collectivists, our, our purpose statement, our first thing is to rescue the lost. The fullness of that statement is to rescue the lost, encourage the found, equip them all. Now I want to celebrate something with you really quick. 2020 is our first year of launch. We launched in February of 2020, and we saw 50 people come to know Jesus in that year, which was really cool. In 2021, we saw 132 people come to know Jesus. In 2022, we saw 202 people come to know Jesus. And so far in eight months of 2023, we have seen 169 people come to know Jesus, right? That's huge. Praise God. And I'm not belittling, but I've said it, and I'm going to keep saying it until we see something different. That's addition, not multiplication. That's addiction. That's, that's, people have come on Sundays and come to know Christ. Now, let me tell you my biggest prayer. I want to celebrate this every time because this is huge. There's 500-something people who know Jesus, right? But listen to me. One of the things this church has done beautifully is it has decentralized its missions and has multiplied its missions. And I love that. Any week, any time during this week, we have somewhat of 14 mission projects happening through different missional communities in different ways. I love that. I get calls all the time. It's like, hey, thanks for the water you brought to the school. And I'm like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, I don't know, somebody, and they'll say a name. I'm like, okay, that's that missional community. I love that. And I can't wait for the day that that's how salvation happens in our church too. Where we're like, listen, how many salvations do your church experience? I have no idea. Because the people who come to our church, they go and they become salt, light, and dark places. And every day, I mean, people come to Christ because they can't go through a conversation without showing them who Jesus is. Not in a way that, like, comes and, you know, says, like, you know, repent of your simple ways. But instead, repent as in change your mindset. Listen, there's a God who loves you, cares for you. Just this past week, um, we began a journey. Um, I began a journey with someone that I went to lunch with some people. And we had a waitress who waited on us. And a whole Thing came about, and um, now we have a goal, right? We want her to see God's goodness and mercy so she comes to know Christ. Listen to me. Glorifying God is leveraging the things of this world for the kingdom of God. Your words, your actions, all to glorify God, to lead people to Jesus and exalt Jesus above everything else. But the question we often ask is this, what if I mess up? Okay, now, if you don't believe in Jesus, and today you're not planning on believing in Jesus, I'm going to give you just something you can put on a t-shirt anyways without Jesus involved. A fear of failure that prevents people from trying will always lead to the success of their fear of failure. So a fear of failure, a fear of not succeeding that prevents you so much in not doing the one thing you want to do will succeed in your failure. Does that make sense? Now, 
Fear is not a tactic of God, Scripture says. It's only a tactic of the enemy, and it stops you from moving forward. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial for just a second, and it's going to change a lot of your mottos and your corporate worlds and stuff like that. And that is this. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly the first time. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, comma, probably comma, maybe semicolon, maybe period, the first time. We should get better at things as we go, but oftentimes we never do anything because we're fearful we won't actually do a good job at it. You won't do a good job at it if it's your first time, right? I saw a meme this week that was like, this is not my first rodeo, it's my second. And I thought that was funny. Like, by our second rodeo, we should have everything figured out, right? Can I tell you the first time I told somebody about Jesus? His name was Ty. It was 2000, I don't know, what in 2000s, I'm old. I was 13. And I went up to Ty, who, and I said, Ty, do you know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior? And he goes, I don't even know what those words mean. And I said, neither do I. No, I didn't say that. Um, little did he know, he didn't know. Um, I turned to Revelation. I read about hell. And then I turned to Revelation 21. I read about heaven. And I said, you choose. Ty, out of a fear of hell, not of a love for God, came to know Jesus that day. I called Ty years later, and I apologized. I said, Ty, man, I just want to apologize. You know, I just, it haunts me the way that I approached the gospel when I spoke it to you. And he goes, Ben, listen, I haven't talked, at this point, like, I probably haven't talked to Ty since then. I was like, done, check, next person. And he said, Ben, looking back, I can remember the story, and you remember it like that. I don't quite remember it like that. It definitely wasn't done, like, correctly, but it's what began my faith journey. And he's like, and I have a family now. I raised them in the faith. And he's like, and I pivoted back to the day I came to know Jesus. So did he say I did a good job? No. No, no. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly the first time. Listen, so many of us are not telling and showing and revealing the goodness of God because we're fear fearful that we're going to mess up the name of Jesus. Let me tell you something, man. All of history has tried to mess up the name Jesus, and it hasn't worked yet. Like some of you think that we're here today, and you've been hurt by what you think is the church because somebody messed up the name Jesus, but you're here today. And I have a hope for everyone who has begun to walk away from their faith because of people who have tarnished the name of Jesus, that Jesus is a name that still they will come back to once they've set aside the lies of an enemy and realize he's a good and merciful God, no matter how much we mess that up. Listen, God does, that didn't ask you to be perfect. He asked you to be faithful. If you look at scripture, he didn't ask you, think about this, he didn't say, I need you to produce. He said, I need you to abide. He said, I didn't, he didn't say, I need you to be famous. He says, I need you to be faithful. And that's what he's looking for is people that aren't perfect, but are faithful people. And the third thing that he wants you to know in order for you to understand his glory and to take your rightful place in glorifying him, which is Jesus' prayer, is we have to understand that he is the one true God. And this is the part that we see this about God and think of God in some kind of selfish image. Like God can't have other people competing with him. No, he didn't say that he is the best God. He's trying to clarify that anything you've put in the place of God in your life, it's not that he's in competition with it. It's that you've been lied to and you've placed things in his place that are rightfully is only his. And verse 3 of John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Christ whom you have sent.
my journal I wrote, God is not in competition with anything else in this world. Yet we often place the things of this world in the position that can only be occupied by God. Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of the sitting, uh, setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So why does God want me to know this? Because Jesus' prayer points to your purpose. Our purpose as the people of God is found in Jesus' prayer for us, the people of God and the church. And, and that's things like to glorify him, to magnify him, to display him. Like you have a purpose on this earth. And we, I say this joke often. It's not a, really that funny of a joke. It's a little bit dark, very dark. But um, we say all the time, like, like, God, your purpose in life is not to come to know Jesus and then make it to heaven as quick as you can. Because if so, we would just, at baptism, hold people down a little bit longer, right? Like... <laughs> Not too, y'all are, y'all are funny. It's not too long. It's just till the bubbles stop and then we know it's all good. Good to go. They in heaven. Because that's not our purpose on this earth. Our purpose on this earth has a great purpose. We glorify God by displaying God. But how you view God, by the way, will determine how you relate to God. And how you relate to God will have a direct impact on how you display God. And by the way, if you're with us for the first time today, you get a free book. And that is the line through the book, right? That how you view God, right? That will determine how you relate to God. Like if you had a bad father figure in your life and you're trying to put earthly attributions on a heavenly father and you view him in the same ways you viewed your earthly father, you're not going to relate to him properly. And how you relate to God on me as a pastor and your friend, someone who wants to see God's name known in all of the world because I believe he's the only true God who loves you, cares for you, and longs to see the world redeemed. Because of that, how you display him will be distorted by how you view him. And so I want you to see him fully because we glorify God by displaying him. And again, God does not need perfect examples, but he needs living examples. Right, People who surrender their lives because they realize it is a gift from God. By the way, John 7, team, verse 7 says, Now they know that everything you have, uh, you have given me comes from you. So what is God's everything? Your time, your talents, your treasures. We leverage what we have and it's given us to us to give glory to God. So he will not only replenish, but he will entrust even more. That's why we say like the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say this part. Remember, give us this day our daily bread. Why do we say that? Let me give you an example. Um, I grew up going to Ryan's. Anybody remember Ryan's? Oh, my gosh. Dear Lord, bring back Ryan's in the name of Jesus. If you don't know Ryan's, then I'm sorry. <laughs> You've probably had the Internet your whole life. That's all I'm <laughs> You should Google Ryan's. There's like a Polaroid picture of it somewhere. I'm just joking. Ryan's had yeast rolls. So let me explain Ryan's. Ryan's is O'Charlie's, okay? But it's not. But it's not. But we're going to talk about O'Charlie's because O'Charlie's is a relevant thing, right? So at O'Charlie's, I learned a rule not too long ago. And I'm about to help some of you out. Some of you have heard me talk about this rule, so you're going to look smart and you're going to give the answers. Others of you know this rule in general. So if I went to O'Charlie's with four people and sat down and they brought my yeast rolls out, do you know how many they'll bring? Five. They bring five because the rule at O'Charlie's is once all the rolls are eaten, they bring out another basket of rolls. But if you bring five rolls and there's four people and we're all like, oh, you can take it. No, you can take it. Nobody takes it. 
So if you ever go to O'Charlie's with me, I'm going to do us all a favor. I'm going to go ahead and grab two rolls from the beginning, okay? <laughs> right? You all get one. It's not because I don't want you to have some. It's because more are coming, okay? <laughs> and, and we eat those rolls. Now, here's what's really interesting about Ryan's. This has nothing to do with today's message as part of it, but just a little bit of rule for you. Now, they'll bring automatically out some more rolls, but this time they won't bring five rolls. They'll bring four rolls, okay? And one for each person. And this time when you eat all those rolls, they won't bring you more rolls unless you ask. So just if you're wondering how to get the most out of your O'Charlie's rolls, that's the way, okay? Um, but here's why. Listen to me, listen to me. I still think about daily bread this way. God gives us daily bread so that we don't become reliant on yesterday's bread. So when we're trying to hold on to yesterday's blessings, yesterday's goodness, yesterday's mercy, and we're like, I, this can tie me on from Sunday's message can tie me through till Saturday's football game, right? And if we can make it all the way through off of Sunday's, then we'll be okay. But the truth is this. God gives daily bread because he expects that you will use the portion he gives you every day, right? He gives you daily bread, and that should signify what you need for that day in order to glorify his name the most. And so with the end of the day, if you find yourself there, I hope you go to bed waiting for what Scripture says is new mercies every morning. I hope you wake up realizing that there is more of God ready for you. You don't have to hold on to stale religion. You don't have to hold on to past experiences. That you can learn to lean into his presence today. Today is about daily bread being a daily glory for God, right? Leveraging what we have for him. So what's he want me to do? Finish what he's given you. That's it. You have a life. And that life will end with a closing of your eyes and awakening into eternity. And I love that. But in your life, he has given you a work to finish. And Jesus had one. He says, I brought you glory, God, on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. I gave this example a couple years ago when talking about this. Um, but I think about it like a basketball game. It would be a silly concept of a basketball game, but hear me out. You got a team and you got a coach. And the team decides the coach, is, the coach knows more about basketball than me. So he should play. So the coach goes out and plays basketball with nobody else out there besides the coach, and everybody else sits on the sidelines. Sounds silly, but it kind of doesn't, right? That coach is probably an expert at basketball. So he should be better or she should be better than the people on the court already. So why would I be on the court if they're better, right? So I'm going to put them on the court. And then that coach gets a little bit tired, and so they say, you know what we need to, to get, right? An assistant coach. So then we put the assistant coach. There's two on the court. They're both really good at basketball. They should be pretty good. Eventually, they get worn out. And what happens? We end up firing that coach because they don't play well enough anymore. We hire a new coach. And that happens three or four times over and over. Do you want to know why churches eat up and spit out pastors? I love being your pastor. But I am not here to play the game. Like, I am here to equip you, to encourage you, to walk beside you, and I'll get on the court. If you don't know me, like, I'll serve beside you in everything you do, but this game will not be won by pastors over churches. It'll be won by churches that decide to take on the glory of God and display it to the world. And then when the church gets big enough, we'll get them an assistant. I don't need an Listen, I'm thankful. I need his people. 
who say, listen, I want to I live the life that Jesus has called us to, to be light in dark places, to be missional living among community, to serve, to show, to reveal the goodness of God to the world. And by the way, I believe this. I believe this is where the church is, not our church. And I do mean that. I say this in a convicting way for us, but I'm being 100% honest with you. I get teary-eyed every week thinking about you. You can ask my wife. I do do it now. Because of how good of a church you are, you are, I couldn't be prouder, I couldn't be more thankful. I, like in the past two weeks, I've sat down with five different pastors or church planters, and I wanted to talk negatively to show them like things to look out for, and I couldn't find one about you. I mean that, like you are just amazing, amazing people. So this is a word of encouragement more than anything else. But I do believe the state of the church globally is at halftime right now, and everything can change at halftime. Watch out, college football, we're coming, right? Everything can change at halftime. Substitutions can be made. Changes can be made. We can reevaluate and we can recalibrate. Nicene Council met after the fourth century. We've seen different eras within the church. And I think it's time for us to gather together and say, what's it look to move the pastor and the pulpits out of the center and put the table, which is for the family and for God, at the center again? What does it look like in order to remove everything that was once carrying the weight, and to reestablish it the way that Jesus decided. This is what Philippians 1 says. Worship team can come back up. I thank my God every time I remember you. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi within the early church setting. And all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm not Paul, but I do want to say to the people who've been here since before February of 2020, I, when I pray for you, I do it with great joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If it's your first day today, I'm already rejoicing what God's going to do. Paul says, being confident of this, that the God who began a good work in you He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I, Paul, have you in my heart. And so whether I'm in chains, which by the way, he's writing to the church of Philippi, so he's in Greece and he is in chains. I've been to his prison there where he wrote this from. Whether I'm in chains, defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. And this is my prayer too. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best that may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And to the glory and praise of God. What will be the results? The results will be, look at this. I'm going to skip forward to about three weeks from now. We'll be here, John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone. He was praying for the disciples, sanctification, Jesus was. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The results will be, I'm going to give you a couple of them. A kingdom culture will replace our church culture. Paul writes to the Galatian church. Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. I didn't get to go to the beach this summer. That's where you all should say, oh, right? Oh, no, it was sad. It was a sad summer. No, it wasn't. It was a good summer. It was a great summer. 
the last time I went to the beach. And I've learned that there's a handful of different guys that go to the beach and I'm gonna kind of divide things up, just ma- making this about guys for just a second, but, but you all will, will relate. There'll be some guys who can just lay on the beach and become complete like lobsters and be cool with it, right? Like they'll have sunglass tan, they'll go back to work on Monday, not even caring. Like that was me, I laid on the beach. Then you got the guys that can, that run up and down the beach. I don't know any of those people because I don't associate with those kinds of people, right? I pray for them daily. Then you got guys who like let the kids bury them in the beach, you know? It's like, oh, I'll just put sand all over me. Like, no, no, thank you. But then you got the guy, and this is me. I go to the beach for a second. I lay there and it's nice. And there's this inward yearning to dig a really big hole, right? Like, like there's something in me. I gotta start digging, right? So I lay there a second and I feel like you should go dig a hole. I'm like, no, that's silly. I, I dug a really great hole last summer. That can be the hole. It was a great, I got pictures in my phone. And um, we start digging this hole and I get out there and I start digging the hole. And here's the thing about guys who go and feel the urging to dig a hole. There's other guys who desire to dig this same hole. And some of those guys are extroverted and not introverted, about half of them. And if they see you digging a hole, they think, oh, we can help dig this hole, right? And then they hop in and now it's just a bunch of middle-aged dudes, you know, hanging out, (laughs) digging a hole. (laughs) Kids come in, can you help? No, (laughs) it's our hole. You're gonna kick sand in it, right? (laughs) And why are we digging this hole? Because there's what? Underneath, really far down. Somebody say it out loud. Water. But the really silly part is, <laughs> there's lots of water right in front of us, right? <laughs> but we got to get to the water. There's a yearning in our hearts to get to the water. And I think about this because it always starts the same. Every year that I go to the beach, I dig a really big hole. And I put nice seats in it. And I put my feet in it as if it's nicer than the ocean or the pool or the jacuzzi that we all have, Right? But I dig and I dig and I dig. And if somebody was there and didn't understand the yearning of our hearts to find water, they would ask the question, what are you doing? And we would say the silly answer in that context is, we're, dealing, we're digging for water. <laughs> and they're gonna be like, it looks like you're just digging for sand. And if you need water, there's water, there's water, there's water. Why are you digging for water? And I want you just to understand something. I do believe that this is kind of the season the global church is in. There's a few um, growing every day and God is changing hearts and minds and people are beginning to dig and it seems silly a little bit. It's like it really just feels like you're just kicking up sand. You're just not really doing much. But at some, and, and it really looks silly because you can look around you and be like, there's other water. Like, I don't understand why this is so important to you. Well, it's because you've never actually gotten to the bottom where you take that last scoop out and water begins to rush in. And I'll be honest, three years in, I'm beginning to feel like the sand's getting a little bit moist, that I feel like we're getting somewhere. But I am waiting for the day that, listen, the whole thing just begins to fill with water. I believe that the church is longing to see what God created in us. And it might feel silly at times. And we might start by doing it kind of with our hands. And we might find other tools. But eventually enough people get around digging, we're going to strike water. And I'm believing for the future church that we see in Revelation 21 when Jesus comes back for his bride. And I believe that that looks a lot like the church that began to dig in the first century. And 
I'm excited about what God has, so what will be the results? I'll give you another one. I think it would be a modern-day expression of the early church. I think that Jesus would just call it ecclesia. He would just call it the church. I'll tell you what else it is, and I haven't written this down. It'll be that season that the Scripture speaks about where the light shines and the darkness has to hide. It'll be the season where the church takes a step and everything around it begins to look like the kingdom of God. I don't think it's as far away as you think. And I think that you as a church, not as a building, not as a collectivist, not as a name, but as a people who heard Jesus' prayer for you and has decided, number one, week one, I'm going to use the things in my life to glorify God. I think that's a big dig in the sand. And I think we'll get somewhere with it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to end with just a little bit of worship. If you'll just stand with me, I'm going to pray over you really quick. We're going to end with a song and worship. I'm going to be available.